Okay, so this is um, Romans, I think it starts at chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith, for we maintain a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, who will justify this of the Gentiles too? Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith, do we then nullify the law of this faith? Not at all, rather we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David said the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. This is blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but not who have been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them, and that he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offsprings received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are their heirs, Faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope became, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. And since he was about a hundred years old and Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God that was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not, not only for him, him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to sin he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised 
to life for our justification. All right, let's um, come before our Lord in a time of prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this day that we can share together as your people in uh, reading your word and understanding it. And we pray that you'd help us uh, to build on it in our lives. We pray that we'd be strengthened today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever missed the, uh, the way to go. Uh, I've had a few trekking trips in the past where I know the destination's one way, but I've actually uh, taken a crew on a journey down the hill as opposed to up the hill. The problem is uh, when you get the map around the wrong way, you, you learn the hard way as people start to explain the fact that uh, aren't we supposed to be going up? And morale starts to decline before it gets better. Well, there was a trekking trip I did like that in the Barrington Tops a few years ago and uh, that night I learnt to night navigate. There we go. Using the map and compass on trails, we got where we needed to go but it was good to turn around after a while and start heading in the right direction. Now, I mentioned this uh, idea because I think Paul's pretty keen to be like a starter's gun, bang, and get off the blocks and go in the right direction with the church in Rome. He's got a historical context where this isn't just Paul's thoughts and his systematic theology. He's writing to a real church in a real context. And that church is involved in a mission as well. As we've been uh, reading through Romans, we can see that there's a balance that Paul's uh, taking in his approach to people from a, a Jewish background and also from a Gentile background. And what we see uh, deeper in the letter, around chapter 15, is his concern that that church is united. That even though those people come from different backgrounds, they're, they're one people of God, united in faith in Christ. And so that's part of the context. He wants a, a unified church. We see that in chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So he's concerned for this unity of the church. The other thing that's important in Paul's mind is that he's actually on his way to Rome and then after that he's planning to travel to Spain and keep the mission going out. And so as he writes this letter, it seems that he wants that, that place, Rome, perhaps to, to send him on his way in that mission and to be a type of springboard to really be united in, uh, in those who hear the gospel to be strengthened back in the church. Because there has been other missionary endeavours that Paul undertook that, that found um, some trouble. Like the time when some people came to Antioch from Judea and started to sprout a different kind of message to the one that he's promoting. This is, this is what happened in Antioch. It says some men, this is Acts chapter 15 verses 1 and 2, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them. 
And so we see that the, the mission that Paul's trying to get underway on the right footing was compromised by people who were just teaching the wrong thing. And that was going to dis- derail the mission to the Gentiles. So Paul wants to avoid that kind of uh, trouble. He wants to see this, the church strengthened and that mission to go out uh, in a neat way. And so that's some of the historical context for these verses that were read today. That, that passage was, was quite a long one uh, that we've got to get through. Um, and so that's, that's some of the historical context for what we're looking at. Now, Scott spoke last week about God who's shown to be the righteous judge, the one who is the just judge and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Uh, it's important to remember God knows humanity's problem and he has a solution. The problem we saw back in chapter 3, verse 22 to 24, was that there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those from a Jewish Christian background, those from a Gentile background, everybody that lives, all humanity uh, has a problem with not loving God and not living his way and sinning, but God has a solution to that problem. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 24 to 26, God acts in Christ to provide a perfect sacrifice for sins. This is wonderful news. The work of Jesus is the grounds of salvation. And there's a way to lay hold of that work. And faith is the way. We see that in chapter 3, verse 26. God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. This next section that we look at really starts to focus on that way. And Paul wants to make sure it's very clear in people's minds. The way to be justified, the way to get right with God, is not through law. Those who boast about law as the way have gone down the wrong path. They're like me taking the trekking trip down the Cascade Trail as opposed to going up the hill to the hut on top with the snow. They're going the wrong way. And so Paul wants to correct that. There's no place for boasting. That's point three in the outline. Let's have a read from chapter 3, verse 27 to 31. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this, this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. But what kind of boasting is Paul referring to here? What is this boasting that's going on? Well, it's actually come up before in the book of Romans, in chapter 2. Uh, in verse 17, Paul writes, Now, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, that same word about bragging there is the same root word here for boasting. What kind of boasting is this though? Well, there's two approaches that have been really put forward. Uh, Some have said that it's actually referring to a a kind of uh, Jewish ethnocentrism, which is another way of saying Jewish nationalism. 
uh, kind of saying that the Jews have got a monopoly, uh, a way to, be, to have the law and to be the people of God. That's the way to get right with God, to become Jewish. And others have said that the problem that Paul's dealing with is Jewish legalism, trying to use the commands a bit like uh, almost a merit system. You know, at school when they, they give you um, certain points for being a good kid and that type of thing. Um, yeah, not quite as trite, but yeah, trying to use the law as a way to get right with God. And so those are the two problems that people think Paul might be dealing with, is this Jewish nationalism, boasting in being a Jew, or a problem of legalism, using the law in a way that it shouldn't be used. Well, let's take the first one first. Uh, the Jews had the law, and they had some very uh, conspicuous con uh, elements to it which, which made them stand out. Uh, they had special days to celebrate. They had uh, dietary requirements which separated them. They had circumcision. And they had plenty of other laws in addition to those things which made them stand out. Some of them thought that maybe if, since they had those things, that made them right with God and counted them among the true people of God. And so they might have started boasting about just having that kind of background. And those who interpret the problem that Paul's dealing with this way, focus on verse 29. You can have a look at that. Verse 29, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? And the logic is, if, if getting right with God comes by having the law and those things, then only Jews or Jewish Christians would be saved. And the implication is that Gentiles have got to take those things on as well. They've got to become like Jews. Uh, and so there's the, the monopoly on the way to get right with God. The second problem, though, that people could be, that, that Paul seems to be dealing with, and it really does grow out, I think this is the supreme problem, is legalism. People glorying or boasting in the law as the way to be right with God. Uh, here's the idea that even though God provided a sacrificial for them to deal with their sin, somehow they lost a bit of contact with that and started to think of themselves as maybe needing to carry out the laws in a legalistic way in order to be those who are in the kingdom at the end. Those who understand the problem of legalism focus on verse 31, which says, when Paul says, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Paul's point is that the law is good. Uh, we see that in Romans and in, in other parts of the New Testament if you use it properly. The law is good because it names sin. It shows us we need a saviour. Uh, but some people have been using the law in a legalistic way. And that's not the right way to use the law. And so if they boast that they, they can keep the law and get right with God that way, Paul's saying that boasting's wrong, it's out of place. And those who boast that they've got the law, circumcision, food laws, etc., that they're, they're right with God because they're Jews, Paul's saying that boasting is wrong as well. Now the reason this boasting is excluded is because they're boasting in the wrong things about the way to get right with God. We'll, we'll see that in verses three, chapter 3, verse 28 and 30. The way to get right with God 
In verse 28 it says, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And in verse 30, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So he's saying it doesn't have to do with having the law and trying to get into that. It's about trust. God provides the way for us to get right with him. Those from a Jewish background, those from a Gentile background, and it's simply by trusting in Jesus. His Specifically, his death and resurrection on their behalf, on our behalf. Now, this, this is very important stuff. You can understand with Paul getting his mission out to the, to the world, he wants it to be on the right footing. Jesus himself said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. God provides the way for us to get right with him. We can't just sort of set the terms. And Paul's pretty concerned that both his church and our church make sure we come to God the right way he's provided. And the way is the way of faith in Christ. And that's what this chapter, next chapter, even though it's fairly lengthy, it really builds on that theme, the way to come to God. And that's the lessons that Abraham learnt and also David. You'll see this, I think we're... In point, bullet point, lessons from Abraham and David now on the right-hand side of your outline. We're getting through it, folks. So let's have a look at introducing Abraham. Okay, one verses chapter 4, 1 to 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. When Paul says, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter, he's using the word we to probably refer to we Jews, thinking of himself as a Jew, standing in that line as um, one who is an ethnic Jew. They've thought of Abraham as their forefather, but what we're going to see later in the chapter is that Abraham's also the forefather of some other people. We'll stay tuned for that one. Abraham was held in great honour by the Jews, and so if anyone had grounds to boast, surely it must have been Abraham. But not before God says Paul. Not even Abraham has grounds to boast that his way of getting right with God was by works or by law. And the reason why Abraham doesn't boast about that kind of thing is because he simply believed God and it's credited to him as righteous. He's counted righteous by trusting God. The experience of King David is a similar one to that of Abraham. God is the same and saves the same way. David highlights the forgiveness that comes from God's grace. This is a gift. Pick it up in verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. 
Now, as we read that, it probably didn't stand out to you as being too remarkable, but there is something very remarkable in the clause in verse 5. The one that says, Now to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, their faith is credited as righteous. Now, normally, you'd expect a judge to do his job properly, wouldn't you? If there's going to be a judge doing some judging, you'd expect he's going to do the right kind of thing. And when the judge judges, you'd expect him to justify the innocent party and condemn the guilty party. Unless, of course, the judge himself is a crook, he's a dud. And there may be some good stories about rotten judges out there, but suffice to say, the, the job of the judge is to justify the innocent um, and to condemn the guilty. And so it's surprising here, it's sort of, it's supposed to leap off the page at us, friends, uh, that God does something radical. God justifies the wicked. And so the question is, how can God be a, a just judge, not a rotten judge, and justify the wicked? Well, there's certainly a penalty to be paid, and that's what Scott really sort of focused on last week when we looked at chapter 3, verse 24 to 26. Uh, Jesus comes as the one who pays the penalty. Jesus bears uh, the wrath of God in our place so that ungodly people, wicked people, people who fall short of the glory of God, people like us, can be right with God, can be justified. It's a, it's a fairly mysterious thing, but there's one God, three persons in one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and in this mystery of the Godhead, it seems that the God takes the sin of his people upon himself in the person of his Son. He becomes the sin-bearing sacrifice in the person of his Son, Jesus our Lord. There's mystery in that, but it's, um, it's why God can actually justify the wicked. Now the point here is that this um, way of salvation, just relying on that work, is a gift. And David underscores the gracious nature of that in Psalm 32. Uh, forgiveness is a wonderful gift and the word used to describe receiving it is the word blessed and it's, a, it's referring to a state of complete happiness. Those who experience forgiveness of sins, who receive this salvation, this justification by trusting uh, can be those who experience this state of being blessed, feeling exceedingly happy, very joyful about being forgiven. Being forgiven by God's grace not by some kind of wages and obligation approach. When Meredith cuts my hair and she gets $5 for it, it's the easiest $5 she gets, but that is not a gift. I give her $5 because she's done a good job. And this is uh, what we're reminded of. This is we're receiving grace, not, not wages. All right, let's keep rolling, friends. Let's have a look at chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. The way of faith is again pointed out in the sequence of Abraham's life. That's what this wordy stuff's all about. He's trying to make the point that there is very much an experience for people to enjoy just trusting God for salvation. Verse 9, Paul notes, the experience of blessedness and happiness at being forgiven isn't limited only to the circumcised, the Jews. 
being forgiven is something that Gentiles enjoy too. And it grows out of the fact of Abraham's life and how he's counted righteous with God. Abraham's right with God even before he's circumcised. And so that gives hope to the Gentiles. We'll see this in verse 10. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign of a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The point is, is that the, the order in which Abraham gets counted right with God shows that people don't need to be circumcised or Jewish also in order to be right with God. The key, once again, is faith in God, faith in Christ, is the way to be justified and counted righteous. Paul now highlights this guarantee to all who have trust in God. That's, the, that's what we see in the next section, verse 13 to 22. I'll pick it up in verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. Not only is Abraham right with God before he was circumcised, he's also right with God before the law comes and is given later with Moses. Justification comes even apart from circumcision and having the law. Furthermore, if people want to be legalists and they think that obedience to law is the way to get justified, there's a problem there too because the law brings wrath. The law names sin, the law shows us sin, but the law doesn't save. It just shows us that we can't carry out not only the letter of the law, we can't even carry out the spirit of the law. And yet God knows that's humanity's problem and provides a way for us to get right with him. We see it in verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not everybody was a Jew, not everybody was circumcised, not everybody had the law, but it doesn't matter because the, the way to get right with God is just by trusting in Jesus. That's the key. Now, in the next couple of verses, Paul wants to reinforce that we can trust God to save along those lines. And Abraham's seen to be one who is confident in trusting God and becomes a model for us. In verse 20, we read, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. In Genesis chapter 15, we get a picture of Abraham being told that he's going to have a son and 
heirs through that son. And God takes him outside and as a visual aid to say how many offspring are coming, he says, look into the sky and count the stars if you can count them. The point is that at that time, Abraham simply believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. And so at that time, he's very confident in God. He trusts God and becomes a model for us as well. Of course, we know Abraham later does struggle with trusting God, but I think Paul's referring to that point in time where he has a very clear uh, response to God, and that's a model for our response too. And that's where Paul takes the story uh, for us in chapter 23 through to chapter 25. Let's have a look at that now. It says, The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Well, that is great news. So Abraham shows us the way. The way of faith is the way, not the way of having the law or trying to be a legalistic. The object of our faith is Jesus, specifically his work on our behalf, his death and resurrection. And so we need to remember that if we're going to start to be tempted to have some merit system, some way of getting right with God uh, that involves doing things, then it's going to end badly. God is a holy God who does not tolerate sin. It's not as though we could even do enough good things to make up for what we've done. The old joke about person going to the checkout to pay for their packet of chewing gum does not pay for maybe the xbox that they've stolen put in their jacket or the knives and forks that they've put in the other side or whatever else they've nicked just paying for a bit of chewing gum on the way it doesn't pay for the other things as well even if we try to be good enough for god between now and when we're dead it's not going to make up for all of our sin against god ahead of time in the past God's provided us a way, and it's not about legalism. And we needn't think that we've got to make the Jews mistake and think that the way to get right with God is being a Presbyterian either. It's pretty clear here, isn't it? The, the way of getting right with God is just by trusting in the work of Christ. That's the only way. Uh, and we can't think that we've got to add that as if God owes us anything. Well, let us be those who... Don't feel the temptation to have to do anything else to get right with God other than trust in Jesus. That would be a way of going down the hill of the mountain into the cascade trails and not going on the right track up the top to the snow where the hut is and the warm soup. Let us be those who stay on the way of faith in Christ. Let's stay on that narrow road that God provides that leads to life. And uh, we need to have that conviction ourselves. And that's the one that the mission that goes out to the world needs to stand on as well. Let us close in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for uh, this uh, part of your word which reminds us about, in a very clear way, the way of being right with you, being justified. Uh, we give you thanks that you've provided the way through faith alone, in Christ alone. Lord God, help us uh, not to be waylaid. Help us not to give anybody the impression that somehow we've got to do things in order to, 
to get right with you. Instead, help us to remind people to rely on Jesus as the grounds of our salvation and, and the way to lay hold of that is by trusting in his work. Lord, help us to be those who continue with that faith uh, both today and throughout our lives and not to be shifted from us from it. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.